that's on the 17th. Monday is not this coming week, it's accurate. So I guess nothing really to announce this week uh, that way. <clears throat> Beautiful day here today, about 70 degrees up on the mountain. I know you're having probably more heat, but fortunately Nelson likes heat, so to each his own, I guess. But uh, I'm sitting at a table here in a chair uh, with the Bible in front of me, as I always do there, so just don't have you here with me or me there with you. But we're getting quite a bit of work done here, which I think is needful work to be done, just not today. Which leads us into the Sabbath again. <clears throat> We've been discussing now for a couple, three weeks the importance of the Sabbath, how God made it and attached a great deal of value to it. We've been through those scriptures, and then, I think it was last week primarily, we went through the symbolism of the Sabbath and how it uh, symbolizes the millennium and the whole world rest that is to come. So it has great and very deep meaning. God made it a holy time to remind us of the things of God, of his creation, of what he is continuing to create uh, with us to be a part of his family someday and the millennium to come uh, is when that family will be added to greatly. So the Sabbath has great meaning and importance for us. Now that I think we fairly well established in the scriptures. So today I want to approach it from the standpoint of how do you keep it? What does God intend on this day? Because you can acknowledge it, you can see that it's important, but what should our conduct be? What do we do on it? Let's go back to Exodus 20 as a good starting point. <clears throat> Here he says in verse 8 of Exodus 20, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So he begins the Sabbath command with remember it. Don't forget it. Don't lose track of it. Don't uh, minimize it in that sense, but remember it. It's a conscious action. It's something you uh, endeavor to do is remember, not forget. It's real easy for people to forget things. Sometimes we want to remember and our mind doesn't work. The same thing can happen to the Sabbath. Uh, people have kind of forgotten about it in the past and gone about their business and even though they knew better. So to start with, remember it. That is a positive action that you do, uh, especially on Friday you remember it because it is the day of preparation for it. He taught us that, uh, or taught Israel that originally in the wilderness when he showed them how they were to prepare for the Sabbath by gathering twice as much manna on Friday. And they didn't do that any other day. And the manna didn't come on the Sabbath because they should have picked up enough to eat on the Sabbath. So 
it is a time that you prepare for, and that's part of the remembrance. Remember that tomorrow is the Sabbath, and to do what you need to do to get ready for the Sabbath, so that you don't have things to do on the Sabbath that would violate the Sabbath principle. And now reading on, we'll see what the Sabbath principle is, or at least the initial part of it. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. All of it. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the eternal your God. So it's his Sabbath. It was made for us, as we'll see later. Uh, in it you shall not do any work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, your manservant, servant, nor your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger that is within your gates. That's pretty inclusive. Anything under your jurisdiction is not to be done, or work to be done, on the Sabbath. Now, I, I had a problem with that when I was in Ambassador College. Mr. Armstrong had started building various buildings, the, the gymnasium, I remember in particular, uh, and there were contractors out there working on the Sabbath. And the way he explained that is that when you give a contractor a contract to build something, then he has to do that within a timely fashion and manner and get the job done. So, therefore, you turn that building over to them until the job is completed. It isn't really your building until... They get it finished, it's inspected, and handed over to you. But it still bothered me to hear concrete trucks and hammering and all kinds of things going on on the Sabbath. And to me, it seemed, why couldn't you prepare ahead of time? When you submit that contract to bidders, within it, very explicit, or explicitly, it would say, no work is to be done from Friday night till Saturday night, sundown, period. It would be part of the contract. So when they signed that, uh, they couldn't work on the Sabbath. Now, buildings usually take longer to do or any project than is estimated. You have weather delays, you have product delays, you have all kinds of things that can come up, unforeseen things. And the thought there is, well, you have to let them work on the Sabbath so they can catch up and finish on time. No, they usually don't anyway. If they work seven days a week, they don't finish on time because of unforeseen things that come up. So why not just put it in the contract? You work six days a week, and that's all, and we'll extend your finish date that many days, let's say it's a six-month project, count the Sabbaths in there and don't make them part of the time because you're supposed to work six days a week and not on the seventh day. And it makes a long list of here. What is somebody who's building a building for you? Isn't that a manservant? 
or a maidservant or whoever's doing the work, or the stranger that is within your gates. So they're coming on your property to build a building. Well, that's within your gates. And I think that that was an error. It was an error made in maybe good conscience or thinking that it had to be because you had to turn it over to them. But ultimately, you're the one that pays for the building. You're the one that designed the building. You're the one who has hired them to get it done. So you can have say in whether or not they can work on Saturday. Okay, one contractor says, well, I can't do that. I've got to work on Saturday. My men have to work on Saturday. You tell them, well, work Sunday. I don't care. You just can't work on Saturday. And if that contractor declines and doesn't want to do the job because of that, you don't get one that will because it can be done. So you can't make excuse. If you have land, property, house, whatever, they're not to work on the Sabbath. doesn't matter who they are. Stranger within your gates, even. So you make a way to avoid working on the Sabbath or anyone working on the Sabbath any place that you have jurisdiction. That's the key. And I think we've made mistakes in that in the past. And hopefully won't have them happen again. Anyway, uh, verse 11, For in six days the Eternal made heaven and earth, the sea and all them and is, and rested the seventh day. And Christ was his contractor. And Colossians tells us that without him, nothing was made that was made. So he didn't go to his father and say, you know, creating the heavens and the earth is a big job. And, uh, man, I, I can't take off Sabbath and get it done. Well, he did his planning. He did his organizing. He had everything ready to go. And in six days, he got the job done, and he rested on the Sabbath. Quite an example right there in the beginning of creation that man knew about. So he made the heavens and the earth in seven days, and he didn't have an overrun in time. Rested the Sabbath. So the eternal blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. So he says right here, you do whatever you need to do to be sure that the Sabbath is a day of rest. Because it's been blessed and hallowed by God, and you can't change that. It just is that way. So you don't work on Sabbath or anyone that has to do with you or anything you have jurisdiction over. Now, your kids may grow up and go away. You can't tell them they can't work on the Sabbath because it isn't at age 18, but in the Bible it's age 20 that God recognized adulthood. So if they're going to go out and work, uh, it can't be under your jurisdiction. Now, I had a daughter when we were in uh, Charlotte who came of the age that she wanted to be working, and she understood this. She knew it. 
Well, she came to me and said, Dad, I'm going to take a job, and I'm going to be working on the Sabbath. Well, she said Saturday, I think. She, no, she said Sabbath. She might have. She said, should I move out? And I said, yes, I believe you should. Because if you're going to work on the Sabbath, you should not be in my house under my jurisdiction. I think she was 18. She wasn't even 20. Uh, the age of accountability in God's Word. Uh, we didn't fight about it. I didn't argue with her. She obviously had made up her mind. That's what she was planning to do. So instead of creating a problem with her, I went out and helped her find an apartment to get a place where she could suitably live and work when she wanted to. But then she was answering to God on her own. She was not in my house. And I think since I was a minister uh, as well, that was part of her thinking, and mine as well, that I wanted to set the right example for the congregation and the church, and I didn't want to have my daughter living in my house and working on the Sabbath day, even though she wasn't working on, let's say, my land or my farm or whatever. But you translate the principle to modern-day life. Most people don't work at home anymore. Well, more and more are, but uh, they weren't. And most people were out working somewhere else. But if it was going to be on the Sabbath day, I did not want that responsibility of having her live and sleep in my house and be out working on the Sabbath. So uh, we have to apply things to our current situation. Back then it was mostly farmers and obviously applied to your own crops and so on. Now, the next place I want to go here is Isaiah 58. Because here in Exodus, it only says, don't work, but rest. Well, you can rest, you can sleep, you can take a nap. Uh, but what else is there? Is there more? And God gives us a lot of clues, a lot of principles in Isaiah 58. Now, the setting of Isaiah 58 is that we're to cry aloud and spare not and show people their sins and their transgressions. And he says, you may seek me daily, but you don't do it with the right attitude and take delight in approaching God at the end of verse 2. And then he uses fasting as an example of how we want things, we want to do things, we want things our way. So we strive, we fast for the wrong reasons. And he then tells us in verse 6, Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? So we have our problems, our difficulties, our sins, and the fasting is to get us close to God, to help us understand that without food we die. Without the breath of air, we die, but we can't go on a 24-hour hiatus from breathing, uh, but we can go on one for food and water. And the point is to break our ego, our pride, 
to humble us, to help us recognize how everything comes from God. And it's, he goes on to say then, the attitude needs to include not just ourselves, but it needs to include others. Fasting is about other people, not just ourselves. Which ties in with what I said recently and have before about Christ saying when we address God in prayer, that we say our Father, not just my Father, but our Father, because we are a community of people and we have responsibilities to each other. No man is an island. No man can live alone. God didn't intend that. And when we become spirit beings, we're not going to have our own part of the earth and go dwell there alone. It is a family with father, son, mother, children. And we dwell together as a family. And he says the church here on the earth, uh, even though we may not be blood relatives, we're all relatives spiritually. And sons and daughters of our father and brothers to our, our brother in heaven and so on. So he did not intend for man, well, to live alone. So he created a help me for him so that they might live together in tandem, in peace, and in love, and in respect for each other. Now, you can go be a hermit or a bachelor or something, uh, but you lose that give back and forth between mates. And it is not to be onerous or one uh, playing the lead in terms of abusing or misusing their mate, man or woman, either direction. It happens both directions. And lording it over them in some fashion. That relationship should be one of absolute humility and meekness and love and not someone standing up on their uh, hind legs and crowing about how important they are or showing it by disrespecting one another and how we treat them and how we conduct our lives around them that doesn't show respect. So God put us here to work together as a family, not to be alone. And he stresses that here. Is it not to deal your bread to the hungry? And that uh, you bring the poor that are cast out to your house. When you see the naked, that you should cover him, and that you should hide not yourself from your own flesh. So he says, when you, with fasting, start doing it not just to get close to God so you can have something, you're doing it to become a humble, meek servant, not an egoistic, proud, vain person. Our world around us teaches us to be proud. And... We talk about our pride and how we have pride in our children and pride in ourselves. No, God hates pride. He avoids and departs from those who have pride. What did you ever do to be proud of? Be born? You had nothing to do with it. Breathe? You had nothing to do with it. But we find all kinds of things to 
show ourselves that we are important or that we're more important than someone else. So pride gets a lot of people in trouble, gets them in a lot of fights because they got a chip on their shoulder. Uh, they don't consider other people as important as themselves. That is just characteristic of human nature, is that I am more important than you are. I'm more, more important to me than you are to me. And yet God says, love your neighbor as yourself. So you should not rise up and pride above your neighbor in any way. Pride is something that has to go away. And that's what he's saying here. You humble yourselves and help others. And what is the result of that, verse 8? Then shall your light break forth as the morning, and your health shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the eternal shall be your rear guard. Then when you call, I'll answer. We can fast and fast and have no answers because we're thinking primarily of ourselves and what we want, not seeking humility and service of others. But when we seek humility and service, then God listens. He'll answer. You'll cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If you take away from the midst of you the yoke of putting forth of the finger and speaking vanity, draw out your soul to the hungry, the afflicted soul, then shall your light rise in obscurity, uh, out of obscurity, in other words. And the Lord shall guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and make pat your, pat your bones, and you'll be like a watered garden and like a spring of waters that fails not. So here the context is fasting, getting rid of sin, and loving your brother as yourself, then is when you'll receive blessings, not when you fast and pray for things for yourself. But when you fast and pray, and then follow that up with feeding others, helping others, serving others, then things will go well. So there's no room for pride. There's only room for humility and meekness. Now, he includes the Sabbath here. I wanted to lay that background before getting to it. But going on in verse 12, uh, still as a preface to the Sabbath, he says, And they that shall be of you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. So he says, getting the right attitude toward people instead of being selfish and prideful, is what will cause God to bless you and use you to help restore the Garden of Eden, to restore proper worship of God. This is a very, very important uh, chapter. Then he gets to the Sabbath, and he includes the Sabbath in what we've just been talking about. It's not just fasting, but the Sabbath has a great deal to do with it as well. Let's notice that here in verse 13. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, 
from doing your pleasure on my holy day. Now, there's a very, very important principle. It isn't in that sense said or stated at all in Exodus 20. It says, remember the Sabbath and don't work on it. Don't let anybody under your jurisdiction work on it. But here he begins to tell us the spirit and attitude about the Sabbath. If you're doing your pleasures on the Holy Sabbath, unholy activities, in other words, things that you normally might like to do, but you decide to do on the Sabbath, and doing your pleasures. Now, that can cover, wow, a wide gamut of things of what your pleasures are. Uh, it's a Sabbath of rest and a holy time, and your pleasures aren't to be done on it. So he's telling us here, think about the Sabbath and what it is you like to do. Now, during the week, you work, but there are other things, too. Work isn't necessarily listed as a pleasurable thing. It can be, but it isn't always. But there are things you like to do as a human being that please your senses, that cause you pleasure, that are, in that sense, not godly. They're just things. I, I know people who justified playing golf on the Sabbath, for instance. They weren't working, and they were out in trees and grass and things that God has made, and there's nothing wrong with being out in the creation and enjoying the things that God has made on the Sabbath. But what's the difference between sitting or strolling and observing the things that God has made and playing golf? Well, I played some golf, and my thoughts are not necessarily on God when I'm playing golf, or when I played golf. My thoughts were on, how do I cure this slice? How do I avoid the water trap or the sand trap? How do I tee off properly? Uh, what's my score, and what's your score, whoever I'm golfing with? Uh, it isn't on God, it's on the game of God. There are distractions from God. Your mind might also be on those four ladies who are playing in front of you and how ashamed they should be of what they're wearing. I guess, in part. But you're, you're out in the public, you're out in the world, generally, and that's part of the world. Now, I was out sitting on my golf cart this morning. Was it wrong to sit on my golf cart? I think Al probably drove his golf cart to services today. He usually does. Is it wrong for him to drive a golf cart on the Sabbath? Depends on the purpose. It was his transportation to get to Sabbath services, and that broke no rules. I was sitting watching a squirrel... Uh, and enjoying him running up and down the trees and begging for food and admiring the creation of God. And that was what was on my mind is how wonderfully God has made things and put them together. And he told us in Romans 1, as we saw last week, 
that we see him through his creation. So, wasn't wrong to sit on the golf cart. I could have been sitting on a rock or anywhere else. It was just more comfortable on the golf cart. But what were you doing? I wasn't playing golf. Uh, because that would have been seeking my own pleasure, and it would not have been in any way drawing me closer to God. I even got to pray some as I sat on that golf cart this morning. Just a place to sit to do what I needed to do. So it isn't always... Yet you have to analyze, why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I taking a walk to admire the sun and the sky and the clouds and the birds? Am I strolling and appreciating God, or am I doing my workout? Am I doing this for exercise? <clears throat> you got six days to exercise. You got one day to slow down, take it easy, Sabbath stroll's not wrong, walk with God, talk with God, look at the things he's made so you understand him better, but that's your goal and that's your purpose as opposed to getting exercise. So one activity might not be wrong depending on why you're doing that activity. Now, we do all kinds of things that are pleasurable to us. We think, well, on Sabbath, if I'm playing a video game, I'm not, I'm not working, I'm resting. But what's that video game about? Is it about God? Or are you just using that time to do something that brings pleasure to you. Mostly worldly things on the video games. There's nothing there about God. What's the purpose? Just to entertain yourself. The things that bring you pleasure. Listening to the radio uh, is something you do primarily for your pleasure. Or having the TV on. What excuse is there for having a TV on on the Sabbath? You're not going to find anything godly there. Uh, so why is it on? I've seen people who said, well, I'm here to watch prophecy and keep up on things. So they got CNN on uh, 18 hours a day, and they do the same thing on the Sabbath. Well, they're not really learning anything. Uh, CNN repeats the same stuff every 15, 20, 30 minutes over and over and over again all day long. No, it's just to be, keep from being bored because they enjoy it, uh, whether it's Monday or Sabbath, the same thing. They're just there because that's what they enjoy instead of video games. Now, is it wrong to occasionally take a look at the news? I sometimes do on the Sabbath, but I don't read a lot of it and spend a lot of time with it. I just kind of look at the headlines to see if the world's blown up overnight. But I can listen and, and uh, to that stuff more on another day than on the Sabbath. Yeah, you got the time on the Sabbath, but do you need to be going in and out about all the various things that are happening in the world? You know it's evil. You know it's headed toward destruction. I think it's wrong to read or watch too much news on the Sabbath 
And I can't think of anything on the TV that you ought to be watching other than that. All documentaries about nature, you can find all kinds of reasons. But are they really there to draw you close to God? Uh, games, TV, radio, entertainment. Now, maybe you can listen to music on the Sabbath. Is music wrong? No. But it needs to be, if you're doing it on the Sabbath, music that is directed at and about God uh, in some form or fashion, not just worldly music. There's no reason to listen to worldly music on the Sabbath. Uh, country music, pop music, all those things, they're about people. They're about uh, romantic things. They're about that sort of thing most genres are. And they're not about God. They're about people. The Sabbath is a day to take pleasure in God and to do holy things, not unholy things. So is the TV wrong? Is the radio wrong? Not necessarily, but you better be very, very careful what you have it on for. Because there's very, very little that you could justify as not being things of your own pleasure. Uh, I could think of some more things. What about going out to eat on the Sabbath? Generally, no. We're told not to buy and sell on the Sabbath. It's a day of rest from that kind of thing. Um, there might be a time when you're away from home. I've been in places all over the world, all over the nation, uh, when the Sabbath came, and I had no way to prepare food. So there have been times when I would go in to a restaurant and eat on the Sabbath because that was the only place there was to eat. And we have to understand what's our motive here. Uh, we'll get to Christ in a little bit uh, where he talked about David eating the showbread and things that weren't supposed to be eaten by him or the men that were with me. And Christ said that physical uh, instruction or that physical ritual was there for a reason, but sometimes the spirit and what is needed goes beyond physical ritual, and therefore God did not condemn him for that. You have to be careful. Is it wrong to eat the showbread on the Sabbath? Generally, yes. And generally, there'd be a penalty for so doing. Uh, was it wrong to steady the ark when it came back in? Yes, it was. And Uzzah died as a result of just reaching out to steady the ark. He thought he was helping. But God struck him dead because that ark was not to be touched. And only certain things could be done with it. So you have to analyze the spirit and the principle and if you do the wrong thing, you might get struck dead. If it's something that God says the Spirit overrules that, he might say, no problem, David. You did what needed to be done under the circumstance. It wasn't for your own pleasure. It's not something you'd come do every week. 
that it was something with your hungry men that you did, and I'm overlooking it because it's a physical ritual here, but it's not something you're to do all the time. He also said that your uh, if your ox is in the ditch, you go get him out even on the Sabbath. Uh, yeah, the animal's suffering in there. He can't get out. He's struggling. He's trying to get out and can't. And it puts him under a lot of stress. So God says, under those circumstances, go relieve that ox on the Sabbath. So then you have people who set that principle aside, and they go into what we've called the ox-ditching business. Uh, you want to do something, you make sure the ox gets in the ditch so you can get it out. In other words, a, they find a reason uh, or manufacture a reason to work on the Sabbath because that's what they want to do. So instead of the ox getting in the ditch, they put oxes in the ditch. And we need to be very, very careful of our thinking and be thinking in a spiritual terminology rather than a physical one of what we want to do because the word doing your own pleasures could come under that very, very quickly. I want to do such and such so I'll make this happen so I can go do that. Uh, that doesn't please God. That's seeking our own pleasures in a roundabout way and finding a justification to do what we might want to do. The ox in the ditch principle is to be used very rarely uh, and only under extreme circumstances. Now, I've had hundreds and hundreds of animals in my life uh, of all kinds, cattle, sheep, horses, goats, on and on. And I don't know that I've ever found one that had fallen into a ditch and couldn't get out. Pretty rare, in other words. Now, I have had goats get their head through the fence and get their horns stuck, and they can't get out, and they're there in the heat of the summer at 100 degrees and can't get water. Now, I could leave them in the fence and tell them, I'll get you out at sundown. Uh, but no, I'll go help him get his head loose so he can go get a drink of water. And I've seen some that have been in there for hours I didn't know about. And boy, did they head to the water trough in a hurry. Now, I need to be careful that I fix things in such a way that that animal won't do that every Sabbath or three times a Sabbath. Some animals seem to think they have to put their head through a fence if they see one. Other animals can go for years and never put their head through the fence, and others will get them there four times a day if you let them. Those, in my history, have kind of gone down the road. They needed to be somewhere else other than there getting their head caught. Or I put a stick over their horn so they can't insert it through the field fence. There are ways you can go about things so that you're not constantly in the goat, uh, in the ditch situation. We need to think, how can I resolve this so I'm not out there four times on the Sabbath getting that stupid goat out of that fence? Sell the goat, butcher the goat, uh, tie something on his horn so he can't do it, or find a way uh, to take care of the problem so you're not in the ox ditch business.
uh, speaking of going out to eat, I didn't finish that thought. Let's go back to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah 11 to start with. Uh, this principle is covered here, I think, quite well. There's Nehemiah. I know I'll find it. Chapter 11. Verse, uh, he's talking about various things here, whether we're intermarrying, they're marrying outside the, the, Israel or outside the church, as we put it today. And, um, it was disturbing that people were doing things that God was not happy with. Uh, we made an agreement that we would not, verse 30, give our daughters to the people of the land nor take their daughters for our sons. And Paul translated that very clearly, that we're not to marry outside the church, uh, only within, because that's where people of the same spirit are. And you're not to marry someone of a different spirit, different religion, different way of thinking. Uh, it should be the same. So he says, do not do that. People have done it, and... They've often achieved a lot of problems. Sometimes they get along fairly well. But there's always some problems involved that would not be there otherwise. And God was wise in inspiring Paul to say that. Something just couldn't be done. Find somebody of the same belief. You'll get along better overall. Verse 31, though, and if the people of the land bring wares or any foods on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year, and the can't read that word exaction of every debt. So they're going over things from the Bible that they said will not do. Let's go to chapter 13 and see an example then of where this was being misused. Chapter 13. Uh, let's see what verse do I want to start in here. Wrote it down. Is it 31? No, it can't be. Oh, here it is, uh, verse 15. This is Nehemiah speaking. In those days saw I in Judah, uh, they didn't have the church, they just had Israel, some treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in sheaves, harvesting in other words, and lading asses, loading up animals to bear burdens. Your ox or your ass wasn't to work on the Sabbath either, remember. As also wine grapes and figs and all manner of burdens which they brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath. They were bringing things in to sell on the Sabbath. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold food. There were there dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of goods, and sold on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Now, we can't control the world out there, uh, he could control Jerusalem, 
because, but it was a physical nation, not a spiritual church. So we can be part of a church today, and there are people out there of all kinds of religions or no religions, and they're doing these things in Israel on the Sabbath, and you and I can do nothing about it. Now, all these stores should be shut down and not even be open. But it's not under our jurisdiction. It's under Satan's. And they're doing what they're doing. Well, these people were as well. But Nehemiah was building the walls of Jerusalem, and he had to say. So he said, I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do and profane the Sabbath day? They were allowing it to go on. Did not your fathers thus, and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? We've been taken into captivity and destroyed uh, because of Sabbath breaking and the, the other commandments. Yet you bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut. They can't come in with their fish and their other wares, and charged they should not be open till after the Sabbath. And some of my servants said I at the gates that there should no burden be brought in on the Sabbath day. So he could do something about it, and he did. And he got upset with the other leaders of Judah. So then what happened? Verse 20. So the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods lodged without Jerusalem once or twice. They thought, boy, the gravy train stopped. Now what do I do? Maybe they'll open them next Sabbath. No. They sat out there once or twice. So then Ben and I went out and talked to them. Then I testified against them and said to them, Why lodge you about the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time forth came they no more on the Sabbath. So he enforced it. And they weren't to come and buy and sell food or other wares on the Sabbath. They weren't to be trading grapes and all the things that people do to work on the Sabbath. So I think the principle here is should be very, very clear. Uh, we should not buy and sell even food on the Sabbath. Uh, very, very plain in here that that was not part of normal use. So, shall we go out to dinner on the Sabbath? No. Why do you get in a car and go out to dinner? You have food at home. You don't need to. You had Friday to prepare food for the Sabbath. So that you wouldn't be preparing it or causing others to prepare it if you were to go buy it. So going out to eat on the Sabbath, people do, why do people go out to eat? Mostly because they enjoy it. It's a pleasure they enjoy. So that's one of their main things they do is let's go out to eat. That's your own pleasure. It isn't necessary. God already told you there's a preparation day. There won't be any manna tomorrow. You get double today. Mm -hmm. So you don't go out for 
pleasure or just to go out to eat because you want to go out to eat. Uh, there are times when there might not be anything to eat, like with David and the showbread, uh, where you're in a strange city. You had no way to prep. Maybe you came on an airplane. I've, I've done some of that. And there I'd be in the motel in Africa or somewhere, and nothing to eat. So I'd go somewhere to eat because that seemed to be the most logical thing. But it was because I needed to eat to give my body the energy to do what I needed to do on the Sabbath. It wasn't to go out to eat because let's go out to eat. It wasn't for pleasure. It was for sustenance and staying alive. And we'll get to another scripture about this in a little while here. But going out to eat on the Sabbath has been the one question that's come up over and over and over over the decades. But I think the principles are pretty clear here. You don't go into the ox-ditching business for food. Uh, oh, well, we didn't prepare. We don't have anything to eat. Let's go out to eat on the Sabbath. You're setting yourself up to abuse the Sabbath. You're not thinking about God when you go to a restaurant to eat on the Sabbath. You're thinking of pleasure between you and family or whoever and just going out because you like it. Now, we prepare food ahead of time for the Sabbath, uh, for potluck, and we can sit down without the world around, without some TV or music blaring in a restaurant that's ungodly stuff, and we can sit down and fellowship on the Sabbath over a meal because it's been prepared ahead. Uh, we shouldn't be cooking our potluck stuff on the Sabbath. We should do it on Friday. It's okay to warm it up, maybe, uh, as we do. But the basic preparation is done ahead of time. You shouldn't be spending your your Sabbath uh, prepping food for potluck. I don't know if there is anybody that is, but if they are, they shouldn't be. That's something that should be done ahead of time. That's what Fridays are for. Prepare it ahead. Have it ready. Then you can use it and enjoy it on the Sabbath. What about driving on Sabbath? I remember a time when I was, oh, I don't know how old I was. I was somewhere between 11 and 14, I suppose. We were at the Feast of Tabernacles, and uh, people had been instructed that it wasn't good to travel on the Sabbath. And some people, after the afternoon service, Feast of Tabernacles over, a family left after the second service, well before sundown, and they got in a head-on accident and killed every member of the family. Mr. Armstrong got very, very upset about that and said if they hadn't been traveling on the Sabbath, that wouldn't have happened. Well, true, that particular accident wouldn't have happened because they wouldn't have been out there on the highway. Now, that doesn't mean on a Tuesday they couldn't have had the same problem, but he applied it, the principles of the Sabbath. And let's say you have a trip planned. What is that trip for? Is that trip to go see God? Is that trip to be at a commanded assembly of God, a Sabbath or a holy day? 
so you need to be there uh, to keep God's day. That may be. Uh, it's not wrong to start a car on the Sabbath. Sometimes people had to drive 10, 20, 30, 40, 150 miles to get to a Sabbath service. And I don't think God minded. I remember some people up in Dillon, Montana, who would come clear to Blackfoot, Idaho, every Sabbath. That must have been, I forget now, it must have been 200, 250 miles over in southwest Montana, clear down the back Blackfoot, probably at least 200 miles. He didn't make much money. Jim Crisscorn was his name. He had about six little kids, and they would come down for Sabbath services almost never miss. And I don't think that God held that against them because they were driving down to meet with God's people before God at a time that was a holy convocation, commanded assembly, that they could get to, but it required quite a bit of driving. Now, Christ supplied the principle, and we may get to it today, of the priests having to work on the Sabbath, and it was not held to their account. It was not an infraction, because it was, even though it was physically demanding, it was done for the purpose of worshiping God, and therefore he did not look with disapproval. Same thing with Let's say that circuit I had right there, I had to drive, I had to have a morning service in Blackfoot, and I think it was 230 miles as I recall. It was only 132, 30 round trip, I don't remember. But considerable driving, uh, to preach two sermons on the Sabbath, counsel with people, be dog tired by the time I got home late at night on Saturday night, and had to buy fuel to make the round trip. God did not hold buying fuel to my account. Neither did he penalize me for driving hard and driving long to serve his people on the Sabbath. It was a necessity to make the Holy Convocation happen. So that was not a problem. I was going on a journey for a godly purpose. Now, most trips we take are not for a godly purpose. Uh, we're traveling uh, for vacation. We're traveling to see relatives. We're going about doing our thing, our own pleasure, not a godly thing. There's a principle there. The priest worked on the Sabbath but it was okay. Everybody else who worked on the Sabbath, it was not okay because it was a matter of helping people keep the Sabbath that the priest worked. I have trouble right now truly relaxing on the Sabbath because I know there's a sermon to give. I know I have to be prepared for it. Uh, there's a tension that starts building even on Friday sometimes to be prepared for the Sabbath. So, when you know you have a duty to perform, and you 
you're building up to that and having to prepare mentally and spiritually for it, it's hard to rest, let's say, on the Sabbath. After the sermon's over, after potluck is over, I can go home and relax and rest for a period of time, whatever's left, and maybe enjoy the Sabbath in the way that God intended it. But everything prior to 1 o'clock uh, is not restful and relaxing. It's hard. Uh, sometimes I'll go out in the backyard, or like I did today, looking at the forest, and and it's a time to meditate and think, and even think about the sermon, which I did some this morning before uh, we got into this. So, sometimes you have to do something on the Sabbath. But if you're headed out on a vacation or something, I think you're breaking the Sabbath by driving on the Sabbath. It was set aside to rest and not do your own pleasures, but the main reason for the trip is not to serve God on his Sabbath. The main reason for the trip is the vacation, to enjoy yourself, your family, uh, go to Disneyland or whatever, uh, or the beach, for your own pleasure. You should do that on Tuesday, Wednesday, or Sunday, not on the Sabbath. So we shouldn't plan and drive on the Sabbath. I'm, I'm afraid to. If I'm driving for my own purposes on the Sabbath, I do fear God, and I fear accidents. I fear things could happen. And when, before I go on a trip, I ask for God's protection. But do I feel like I'm going to be protected uh, from accidents and so on if I'm driving on the Sabbath? No. It's not of good conscience. I need a clear conscience on the Sabbath. Is the telephone evil? No, I'm using a telephone right now to talk to you, and it's for godly purposes. But you can use a telephone for ungodly purposes on the Sabbath, and it's a sin. Should the Sabbath day be used to have long conversations with your relatives or friends, friends in the world or relatives in the world? No. That's not hallowing it. It's not making it holy. It's just chatting with friends or relatives. That's not a godly thing to do on the Sabbath. Now, if you're talking to a converted person, maybe a brother or a sister or a father or mother or some, someone, who is converted, and you're talking about godly things and about God on the Sabbath, now that's a different matter. Because you're not seeking your own pleasures, you're seeking God and uh, sharpening each other about spiritual things on the Sabbath. But just to talk about family or friends or the weather or whatever, uh, the phone would be then a subject of your own pleasure not of doing something that gets you closer to God, gets you closer to an unconverted relative maybe, but not to God. So you got to think about the purpose of what you're doing. Some women, even men I suppose, think as soon as the meal's over, they got to jump up and do the dishes. They're just not content unless all the dishes are done. 
Now, some people pile them up for a month before they do them, uh, but others feel like it's got to be done right now. Well, why? Is it going to cause some great eternal plan to go awry if your dishes sit there until Sabbath is over, until sundown? No. Now, you may be obsessive-compulsive and various things, and you just can't rest. Well, maybe you need to learn to. Maybe you need to learn that some things shouldn't be done today. They could be done at sundown. Relax. Now, Christ dealt with a couple of women who had a different situation, Martha and Mary. Well, one of them would sit and listen and learn and do important things, while one was just fussy about serving, wanted to get this done, wanted to get that done, make sure everybody's taken care of. Well, service is good, but she was serving to the point that she was missing the important information that was being discussed. And Christ put her to task. Don't be obsessive compulsive. Sit down. Listen. Put that other stuff aside because here's something more important that's going on than doing the dishes or making somebody sure somebody has enough coffee. You know, we have to make choices. And if we tend to be the obsessive kind that has to get it all done right now, then we may need to work on our personality and learn to relax like Christ told her. She'd been doing this probably all her life. It was a personality trait. He said, fix it. Overcome it. Grow. Change it. Don't just give in to it, but recognize the importance of what's going on and be sure you're getting that now, you can serve, you can give, you can help. That's all good, and we should do that. But if it's getting in the way of something else, then no. And you can do that on the Sabbath by being too compulsive about the dishes, or I'll just bring that up as one example. Uh, there could be a hundred things that you have to just have done. Let's see. Some people sit down at the computer and browse, or they may even order things on the Sabbath, buying and selling. No. That computer is like the phone or the radio or the TV. It can be used for wrong purposes, and there's a lot of wrong stuff on a computer. You have to be careful. That's not a day, Sabbath's not a day to be following sports, listening to a game, or, or reading up on your team or whatever. That's not what Sabbath is for. Sports and things of that nature aren't godly. They're just physical human things that people do for their pleasure, for their enjoyment. No, I don't care if it's the World Series or the NBA Championship or the Super Bowl. That isn't to be watched on the Sabbath. or Super Bowls on Sunday, but those other things can come any day of the week. And we should not have our minds on those things. You know, sit around, just read the sports. Uh, that's just doing your own pleasures, doing your own thing. It has nothing to do with God or His creation. It's just your own pleasure. Well, I've said quite a bit about the very first statement He makes in Nehemiah, I mean in Isaiah 
um, 58. Don't seek your own pleasures on my Sabbath. And that's something we need to analyze. Why am I doing what I'm doing? How, do, how am I justifying seeking my own pleasure, the things I like, on the Sabbath? Not working. But Isaiah 58 is in the Bible, too. And he's instructing us here and telling us not to do anything that is our own pleasure on the Sabbath, just for the sake of pleasure. Uh, well, I'll bring up one more. I'll mention while I'm thinking of it. People have questioned whether uh, a married couple should have sex on the Sabbath. Some have said, oh, no, that's your own pleasure. And others have said, no, it's okay. Well, what's the right principle here? You're not out seeking pleasure illicitly on the Sabbath or any other day for that matter. But a husband and wife are one flesh and bonded together uh, spiritually, physically, in every way, and are to be one as Christ is one. And properly used and properly enjoyed without all kinds of memories of abuse and misuse and all kinds of things that mess people up emotionally. But I say normally speaking, sex between a married couple should be a very pleasurable thing for both of them. So yes, it's pleasurable, but it's also godly. Because in a marriage relationship, it is a godly thing that draws a husband and wife together. It helps get rid of little attitudes and problems and divisions between them because if done properly, it should draw them close together as opposed to driving them apart. So all things being as they should, that is one of the best ways to draw close to each other is legal marital sex. And we are to be at one with Christ and all through the Bible sex, legal sex, is there to help a husband and wife become one. And becoming one with Christ is the most important thing we can do on this earth. And marriage relates to, and is symbolic of, including sex, a relationship with Christ, our husband-to-be. We're here as the bride preparing for that, and we're not totally at one with him yet, but a husband and wife are to be uh, promoting that between themselves so that it is a picture of and a type of the kind of relationship we'll have with Christ. Of course, that begs another question, will there be sex in the kingdom? And... Uh, Christ said, he was talking about the second resurrection, uh, that there won't be marriages in, you've got to stop the kids somewhere, but they'd be like the angels in heaven and not be, there would not be sex in that hundred year period, is what it appears to mean. It will, will there be sex of some kind in the kingdom? It is one of the most, if not most powerful things on earth today that affects so many people, good and bad, depending on how it's used. And it is there to draw a couple together 
in the Spirit of God. And therefore, to imbibe in it on the Sabbath, legally, lovingly, is not wrong. It is part of our drawing close to Christ. There may be some form of sex. I don't know. God is not a mannequin. Christ is not a mannequin. And a man specifically is made in the exact image of God. So they have everything that a human man has, uh, physically speaking. How that would be used, or in what manner, or uh, anything of that nature, or some form of it, God does not mention, and I think for very good reason, because if he did, uh, there would be some people who would not like that. They wouldn't want to be in the kingdom of God if they thought they had to go through sex. There are people on this earth who have been misused, abused, and don't like sex. Men and women, probably more men, women than men, but they don't like it. They don't enjoy it. And if they thought they had to do that forever, oh my, that would create all kinds of problems. So whether there is some form of it or not uh, really makes no difference. We know that everything in the future is going to be better than it was here. <clears throat> so being a spirit being and in doing the things that spirits do, everything will be better than it was here. So what he has in mind for us, let's put it this way, it will be better than sex. And to some people, uh, that means a lot. To some people, they say, I sure hope so. But a lot of it depends on our own experiences and our teaching and so on on this earth. I, there was a deacon's wife in the Miami church who grew up Catholic, and she was taught that her body was evil. And in having four kids and living with her husband all those years, he had never seen her body. She made sure she had a granny gown on before uh, the lights came on, and she just couldn't handle it. She could have sex, but she didn't really enjoy it, and she couldn't be free with her body because she'd been taught that it was evil. And Catholic kids are taught that, girls especially. So then you tell them, we're going to have sex in the kingdom of God, they might have a heart attack on the spot. So I don't know. God doesn't come there. So it doesn't do a whole lot of good to speculate. People have. But it doesn't do because we'll, whatever God has for us, with or without or whatever form of or whatever, it's going to be better than it was here. Life, I mean, in general. It's going to be far better than it was here, and it will be, be beyond any of our expectations here. So, what kind of pleasure are we talking about? Are we talking about just our human satisfaction, TV, radio, video games, whatever, as opposed to something that pictures godliness? So, yes, it should be pleasurable in the right way and should be imbibed of, and the Sabbath is a good time for it because you're resting and relaxing. Nothing wrong with that. Yes, it's pleasurable but it's the right kind of pleasure pointed at God. Bible study can be pleasurable. Does that mean we shouldn't read our Bible on the Sabbath because we're seeking our own pleasure? There's the key. Our own pleasure is opposed 
to the things that are godly and of God. So you have to use your mind and figure out, why am I doing this? What's my motive? Can I drive a golf cart to services? Yes. Can I drive one on the golf cart? No, I think you'd be infringing on God's Sabbath. So think about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Wrong to listen to music? Not if it's glorious, holy music, wonderful to listen to on the Sabbath. Anything else? No, nothing else. Unless it points us toward God. Well, there's more, and I may cover more later, I don't know yet. Uh, but that gives you an overview, at least, uh, with the first part of Isaiah 58.13. I suspect we'll continue this and get into some more aspects of it. But that will be all for today.